Everybody good? We good? All right. Hey, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And that is God's hope, God's prayer, and God's desire for every single person in this room. Maple Grove, God does not want us to miss his grace. Uh, because if we miss his grace, we, we miss the point, we miss the power, we miss the, the purpose behind, behind everything. And we also miss out on what getting grace can and will do in our lives and in this church. Our getting grace equation, we've talked about several times, you know, getting grace e- equals change lives and the bearing of fruit all over the world. I mean, think about, think about those two beautiful and powerful things, change lives and the bearing of fruit all over the world. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, but, but tragically, missing grace uh, does happen. It does. I mean, there really are people who, who attend church and are part of a, a faith community who, who miss the grace of God, and the results are not very pretty. Missing grace equals bitterness, trouble, and the contamination of many, uh, the spread of our gracelessness. And listen, when we, when we miss grace, uh, what happens is we, we find ourselves replacing the grace of God with some kind of cheap substitute like religion. And, and by the way, we're not big fans of religion around here. Uh, uh, we're not big fans of rules and rituals and and measuring up and actually thinking that those things can earn God's favor, that those things can make us right with him because religion doesn't work, it never has worked. And, but listen, when, when we, when you and I, when we really get grace, the, the heartbeat of our life is done, not do. Uh, the focus of, of our life is inward, not outward. Uh, the foundation of our life is relationship, not rules. Uh, the motivation of our life to, to live a good life is, is, is gratitude, not shame. And the feeling is freedom, not fear and frustration. And, and the results of getting grace is not guilt and pride, but, but love. Love for God and love for others. And, and so for four weeks, we're focusing on a very simple equation. Grace is greater than. I understand, whatever you put in that blank, that equation remains true. Grace is greater than. You know your line three times and we can move on. Grace is? Grace is? Grace is? And week one, we, we talked about the fact that grace is greater than our mistakes, I understand, whatever sin comes into your head, whatever mistakes that you've made, uh, whatever you most regret, whatever season of life you would like to pretend never happened, whatever secret sin you so desperately try to hide, whatever mistake causes you to feel the most guilt and shame, grace is greater than. Uh, Understand, grace is greater than the failures that follow you and the guilt that wants to grip you. Grace is greater greater than. And brothers and sisters, let's not become one of those Christians who, who has experienced God's grace and forgiveness, but yet continues to live under condemnation and guilt and shame. Today is February the 21st, 2016, and today God wants you to be free from that, free from guilt, free from shame, free from measuring up, and free from your mistakes through the power of his grace. Get it? Good. And and then in week two, we talked about grace a little bit differently, that the grace of God is not just about receiving grace, but it's also uh, about giving grace. And of course, we all like and we're totally okay with talking about and, and singing about receiving grace, but it gets hard, it gets messy, and it's not so much fun when the coin is flipped and we begin talking about giving grace. I mean, I can't even think about one song about, we sing that's about me forgiving somebody or me giving grace. There could be, but I can't think of one. And, and listen, if you happen to be in, in this room two weeks ago on February the 7th, you know that the Spirit of the living God was doing some serious work in the hearts of some people in this room as he taught us some powerful truths about messy, about hard, about giving grace. 
Uh, truth number one is that you know, our, giving, uh, our giving of grace to those who have hurt us, and maybe you've been hurt by somebody, uh, the giving of grace to those who have hurt us reveals how much grace we really have received from God and how much we're just kind of faking it. Truth number two is that we understand, get, and experience God's grace only to the degree that we're willing to extend grace to the one who, what, hurt us the most and deserves it the least. Brothers and sisters, remember, grace is only grace if it works both ways. Grace is only grace if it, what, if it works both ways. Amen? And listen, you know, grace is the only way this community will ever work. Uh, understand, his church only works if those who have received grace give grace. And, and understand, the moment we make church about our receiving justice from those who have hurt us, we cease to be the church God desires and the church God created us to be. Get it? Good. Truth number three was well, not a, a fun truth, if, if you thought those were kind of tough. Um, if you and I refuse to give grace to those who hurt us, we will what? We will actually lose grace. Yeah, last week, in the, uh, two weeks ago, Jesus in the parable of the unforgiver servant made that truth perfectly, painfully, and terrifyingly clear. I understand, when someone who has received grace refuses to give that grace, grace back to someone else, that's a problem for God. That's a big problem for God. When the other servants saw what had happened, probably the unforgiven servant, when they saw someone who was part of their community who had received grace, refused to give grace, they were what? They were outraged. It's not how it's supposed to be. And went out and told the master everything that had happened. You know, Maple Grove, God expects us to React the same way to ungrace, with outrage. Are you kidding me? You've been forgiven so much. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And anger his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And, and then this very terrifying verse, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you and everyone in here is in each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Is, is that kind of scary? <laughs> Again, the, the truth that Jesus is wanting to make perfectly clear in this parable is that if we think it's okay to receive grace and not give it, if we think it's okay to be forgiven and not forgive, if we think that ungrace and gracelessness, if we think that being a gracist and practicing gracism is acceptable, if we think it's okay to bask in bitterness, to reside in resentment, to grip tightly to that grudge, to keep a record of someone's wrong, to let our hurt become hate, to let our madness become malice, if we think that this kind of behavior is okay and acceptable to God, we are wrong. We're dead wrong, and we are on a path to hell. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers or sister from your heart. And yeah, I know it's not fair. I know that. Because people owe you something, right? Yeah, I know it's not easy, but here's the deal. Jesus will never ask us to give more grace than we've already received from him. And remember, we are, we are most like beasts when we kill, we're most like men when we judge, and we're most like God when we forgive. I came across this verse this week in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. It says, a, person wisdom, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to do what? Overlook an offense. You know? And, and the way I see that is when we overlook an offense, heaven applauds. God is like, yo, Gabriel, Michael, check this out. They just overlooked an offense. They were offended and they overlooked that offense. Proverbs 14, 9, we read this week. Fools don't care if they sin, but the godly acknowledge it and seek what? Reconciliation. Not justice, right? <laughs> Reconciliation. You, you see, once seeking justice is our goal, 
we have stepped outside of God's grace. Two clubs, Grace Club and the Justice Club. You can't, you got to be in one or the other. And, and I, I want to be in the Grace Club, right? And, and the minute I want justice, I have stepped outside of God's grace. Get it? That uncomfortable? Yeah, it should be because it's uncomfortable to me. But it's truth. If you got an issue, take it up with Jesus. And listen, the key to giving grace, right, is to stop thinking about what's been done to you and start thinking about what Jesus has done for you. That's it, and it's hard. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying that we have to stop. When the bitterness starts to grow, when the rage starts to set in, when the resentment begins to eat us up on the inside, when the demand for justice becomes an overwhelming and unrenting, unrelenting flood, we have to stop and we have to think. We have to stop thinking about what's been done to us and replace those thoughts with all the things that Jesus does for us on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. And we remember all that he has done for us, brutalized on a cross for us, a perfect, sinless man, it will give us the power to forgive what has been done to us. Get it? Get it? Good. It's tough. Here's a question right here. Like, like, what if grace was the default setting of our life in church? What if we were having a relational conflict at home in a marriage? And what if our default setting was grace? Okay, grace. I fall back to grace every time. What if that was our default setting? What if it was the default setting of this church? Grace, forgiveness. Would God be pleased? Would heaven applaud? Would the demons tremble? Would the gospel be advanced? Would there be more joy and more peace? Well, well, that's where we've been in this grace is greater than series. And and yeah, I I know I ate up a ton of time um, on my clock reviewing this, but I'm okay with that because I do not want anyone, including me, to miss out on the life-changing grace of God, a grace that is greater than our hurts, a, a grace that is greater than our mistakes. And I know that in this room, there is a boatload of hurt and a boatload of mistakes, and God's grace is greater than. Amen? And this morning, we're going to see, and I don't want to miss out on this either, we're going to see that, that the God's grace is greater than our weaknesses. It's greater than our weaknesses. Got any? Okay, let, let's pray. God, we love you, and, and you love us more. You love us first. Your love is deep. Your love is wide, and your grace is unrelenting. And, and God is beautiful, and it's powerful, and it changes us when we get it, God. And God, I thank you that your grace is greater than than my sins and my mistakes, and that it's greater than my hurt. And, and God, I just pray that every one of us in this room will, will, will immerse ourselves, will, will, will drown ourselves in your marvelous, amazing grace. And, and God, enable me this morning to, to talk about um, how grace is greater than our weaknesses, because I know, I know, Lord, that I need to hear this one as well, because I, I not only have hurt and, and mistakes, but I have weaknesses. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's do this. Our text is 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. And, and here, here's what's going on in this section of, of Scripture. Paul is challenging the church in Corinth n- not to celebrate strength and accomplishments, but to celebrate weaknesses. Why? Because weakness gives space for God's grace to show up. And weakness is where his power is most visibly demonstrated. Now, now what you need to understand about Corinth, and, and here, here, here's, I know what I just said right there, like, I, I love fill in the blanks, and I give a lot of fill in the blanks, and then I talk really fast, and then no one has time to fill in the blanks, right? Like, I put in like seven fill in the blanks, and, and I expect you to be tracking with me, you know, at my funeral, when you guys come someday, they'll be filling the blanks, so, you know, just be ready. I, I need to make that up soon, because you never know, right? You never know, right? Uh, okay. Um, now, what we need to understand about Corinth is that it was a destination city. It was a place where you went like Chicago or L.A. or New York. It, it's where you went to experience culture. It was a place of pleasure, exotic living, and extravagant building. Sometimes you'll still hear references, references to the Corinthian style. 
I mean, I went on Google Images this week, and I, I did Corinthian style, and this picture jumped out right here. Which is this architectural style marked by what? Large columns, which meant and demonstrated power and prestige. And that's exactly what this city was like. Understand, the Corinthians placed a lot of value and a lot of importance on things like strength and education and accomplishments and power. And, and so Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to them, and, and, and now he's writing 2 Corinthians. And in between that time, those letters arrived to the church in Corinth. Some false teachers had come on the scene, and, and they were winning people in the church over to their side and to their false teaching. Uh, and the way they did this, first by discrediting Paul and attacking him, saying, hey, Hey, you should not listen to Paul. He, he's really not the guy you think he is. If you really knew who he was, yeah, I know he says good stuff, but if you really knew who Paul was, you would know he's a fake and a hypocrite, so don't listen to him. Another thing they did after they discredited Paul, they would pass around their own, own resumes to say, hey, look how awesome we are. We are more awesomer than Paul is. And, and so, so people were leaving Paul and the truth and were embracing this false teaching. You know, and that put Paul in a predicament where he had to defend himself but it also gave him a great opportunity to put a powerful truth on the paper. Kind of like what happened when he wrote the first letter to the church in Corinth. You know, and he, he found himself in a predicament that allowed him to write down a powerful truth. You see the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, they were fussing and fighting over who's the most important in the church and who has the most important spiritual gift. I'm more important than you because I can do this. I'm more important than you. And, and they were fighting and bickering and there was division. And, and, and Paul said, hey, you know what? You want to pursue, pursue something really important? Do you know what really matters? You know what really matters? He says, love is what really matters. And then he breaks out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, we think he wrote that so that pastors would have something to read at weddings, right? No. You know, he took an opportunity to say, hey, hey, you guys, here's what matters. Love is, is what matters. Without love, nothing else matters. And then he defines love for us. Well, here he is once again turning a predicament into an opportunity to teach a powerful truth. Now, in order, to, in order for Paul to counteract these false teachers who were discrediting him and causing people to leave the truth, he was forced to do something that he didn't want to do. Paul was forced to pull out his resume, which was extremely impressive. And say, okay, all right, you guys want to compare resumes? <laughs> Hope you have some time. Because mine's going to blow yours out of the water. And understand, in doing this, Paul was walking a very thin line. You see, Paul does not want the church to be won over by human strength and accomplishments, by human wisdom. Instead, he wants the church to delight in weakness so that they can experience God's power. And so even in the midst of listing all his strengths, he's ultimately going to challenge them not to hide from, not to run away from, not to disguise their weaknesses, but instead to celebrate them so that they can experience God's grace all the more fully. Are you tracking with me? And I believe that God is making the same challenge to us today. Because like Corinth, we live in a culture and a time and in a society where we put a ton of emphasis on strength and abilities and accomplishments, on self-reliance. I mean, that's what we value. That's what we celebrate. That's what we strive for. But Paul's going to flip that over and he's going to say, look, what you should delight in is not your strengths, it's your weaknesses because you're... Because in your weaknesses, you leave room for God's grace and for his power to be demonstrated. Get it? Good. So here's how Paul's going to pull this off. He's first going to talk about his strengths uh, for two reasons. Number one, all right, to show that, all right, I know these guys think they have an impressive resume. Mine is a much better resume. I am more qualified than these false teachers. I really am God's apostles. Apostle. Number two, because Paul wants to know that when it comes to their value system, that how they measure people, he wants them to know, hey, I am in fact strong. See, Paul knows that if he's seen as weak and then he tells them to celebrate weakness, that's not going to mean much because, of course, a weak person is going to celebrate weakness. So what Paul wants to see, Paul said, hey, I, I, I'm strong by your standards. And, and then what Paul's going to do, he's going to take all that strength, all that things they value, and he's going to wad them up and throw them away and say, I consider all that stuff rubbish that I may gain Christ because, brothers and sisters, it's really weakness that we want to celebrate. And so here how he begins. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 21, he says, Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, 
Again, these false teachers are boasting so they can discredit Paul. Hey, look how impressive we are. And then Paul says, I'm speaking as a fool. He goes, man, I don't want to do this. It's so stupid, but I got to do it. They force my hand. I also dare to boast. All right, they want to put out resumes. Let's do it. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And here he goes, I'm out of my mind to be talking like this. I hate that I got to do this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews a 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pulled... Um, one, once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. Seeing the theme here? In danger from false believers. I've labored and told, have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak that, that I, I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin that I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of these things that show my weakness. And then he continues the same theme into chapter 12. He says, this boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will, reluct, I will reluctantly, reluctant, reluctant, wow, someone say that for me. <laughs> reluctantly. <laughs> if you're for the first time, I are a communicator, okay? About visions and revelations from the Lord. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Now, the first heaven is where the birds fly. Uh, the third, second heaven was where the stars are. And, and the third heaven was where God lived. Right? And it's not some place out there beyond the stars. It's, it's like another dimension that in our present uh, finite three-dimensional state that we can't see. Paul continues, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. Now, I believe this event happened in Lystra. In Acts 14, it talks about how Paul was dragged outside the city in Lystra and, and that the people stoned Paul and they thought he was dead. I tend to think he died, and this is when he got his, his trip into heaven. Um, Paul says, but I do, here's what he says, but I do know that I was called up to paradise, and I heard things so astounding that it cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. That experience, he says, is worth boasting about. And, and just let me tell you something, like uh, kind of a moment of transparency. If I by chance get caught up in the third heaven, I'm talking about it next weekend, right? I mean, I mean, like my title of my sermon is going to be how I was caught up into third heaven. I mean, I would be Instagramming, Facebooking, and tweeting like a madman. Hashtag, guess where I went? Hashtag, I saw heaven. Hashtag, Jesus took me. Hashtag, and he didn't take you. I mean, I, 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 I would probably write a book about it. And I call it, heaven is for real. Hi, I went to heaven, and you didn't, right? You know, and I'd see if I get on Oprah or some of the morning talk shows, and, and no matter what conversation I had with people, politics or, you know, um, sporting events or the latest episode of The Walking Dead, is, is, is Glenn alive or dead? Whatever, whatever it was. Oh, you had a great hamburger last night? Well, by the way, when I was caught up into the third heaven, I would find a way to work it in. That's how it would go for me. But Paul had a different response. That experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. I'll boast only about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life and hear in my message, even though I receive such wonderful revelations from God. Not, not, not once, but more than once he received revelation from God. 14 years and this is the first time he mentioned it. And he just mentions it in passing, and then he tells us enough to tell us that he's not going to tell us anything more about it. You know, when you read Scripture, you know how Paul usually introduced himself as he opened up a letter? You know, Paul, the man who was caught up in the third heaven, writes to you. No, he, he would say, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. 
A slave is known for, well, not a resume, that's why they're slaves. And not for their heritage, their lineage, that's why they're slaves. Instead, a slave is really owned, really owned by one thing, by their master. Their master that they serve. And so Paul's approach to life was this. Hey, if you really want to know anything about me, here's all you need to know. I am a slave of Christ Jesus, and that's all that matters. Amen? He says, I'm a slave to Jesus, and that's all that matters. Whoever acknowledges that he has, you know, a pretty impressive resume, went to the right schools, has all the right credentials, and he knows it would have been easy for him to be proud, to put confidence in his strength. So he talks about the fact that God allowed him to have a thorn in the flesh, a weakness. Why? So that he would be dependent upon God. Again, we owe these false teachers in Corinth some thanks because their attack on Paul and his ministry gave him an opportunity to teach them and us a powerful truth about how grace is greater than our weaknesses. Let's move on to verse 7. So to keep me from becoming proud, keep me from putting the confidence in myself, I was given a thorn in the flesh. And that word for thorn is not like some little thorn on a rose bush. It, it is like it, 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 it means uh, a shaft of, wood, shaft of wood that is sharpened at one end like a spear and used to impale somebody in battle, right? That's kind of a different picture. Like, oh, I prick- no, this, is a, this is a spear impaling you. He says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. And the word torment means to strike with a clenched fist again and again and again. And it kept me from being proud. Three times he says, I beg the Lord to take it away. There's all kinds of speculation as to what this thorn might have been. And, and we'll talk about those in a moment. But listen, whatever it is, it's pretty significant because three times Paul hits his knees, weeping and begging God, God, take it away. God, please take it away. Now, I, I don't know what it is for you, but, but I'm pretty confident that you can identify with Paul. I mean, there is this weakness, this significant and debilitating thing that you have begged God to change. You begged God to heal. You've asked God to take away, and it, and, it, and it just hasn't happened. Max Lucado writes, a thorn in the flesh, such vivid imagery. A sharp end of a thorn pierces the soft skin of life and lodges beneath the surface. Every step, a reminder of the thorn in the flesh the cancer in the body, the sorrow in the heart, the child in the rehab center, the red ink on the ledger, the felony on the record, the tears in the middle of the night. Take it away, you pleaded, not once, twice, or even three times. You've outprayed Paul. He prayed a sprint. You prayed the Boston Marathon, and you hit the wall at mile 19. The wound radiates pain, and you see no tweezers coming down from heaven to help. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times, he says, I begged the Lord to take it away. And notice that Paul, he recognizes that it's from God and, I mean, from Satan and also that, that God could take it away if he wanted to. So, so it's from Satan, but God allows it. And, and that's a very helpful and biblical view when you and I experience the thorns that will impale our lives. Satan sends a God can remove it, and sometimes he doesn't. Why doesn't he remove all our thorns? Well, here's his answer to Paul. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. I mean, have you ever felt um, insufficient in the face of your weakness? God's grace is sufficient. For my power, it's the Greek word dunamis, dynamite, for my power is made perfect, is and that word means to bring something to its fulfillment, its goal, its purpose, its aim, its end. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so now I really love where Paul goes with this. You know, like after three times, he finally gets it. He's like, okay, okay, guys, so this is the deal. This is how you say this weakness thing and grace works. You're saying that, that it perfects your power in me and unleashes your sufficient grace. Then I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses. So the power of God can work through me. That is why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm glad I take pleasure in my weakness. My line is, for when I am weak, yours is, then I am strong. For when I am weak, 
For when I am weak, for when I am weak, Paul's like, yeah, I used to plead to God to take away the weakness, to take away the thorn. I, I don't ask for him to do that anymore because I understand now that that weakness, that that thorn that I would have done anything to get rid of, that those hardships and insults and persecution that I wish I never had to go through, that's where I experience God's grace most powerfully. That's where God's power works best. And, and if that, Paul's like, and if that's where God's power works best, if that's how God's power is made perfect in me, if that's what unleashes his all-sufficient grace, then I'm going to celebrate my weaknesses. Wow. Powerful. Inspiring. And hard to do, right? I mean, we don't celebrate our weaknesses very well, do we? Instead, we, we run from them, we tend to deny them, or try to get rid of them. But Paul says, no, be glad about them. Take pleasure in them. Take pleasure in that thorn. Take pleasure in that weakness, because that's when you're going to meet God and his grace in the most powerful of ways. Brothers and sisters, grace is greater than our weaknesses. Got any? And what I want to do right now, kind of like we did a few weeks ago, we talked about grace is greater than it hurts. I took that equation and broke it down to three other little equations where I said, you know, um, grace is greater than it hurts, grace is greater than repayment, grace is greater than revenge, and grace is greater than resentment. I kind of want to do the same thing with this, this equation, grace is greater than weaknesses, and first of all, talk about that grace is greater than our infirmities. Again, the idea of this thorn is a spear that is impaling Paul. So it's not an annoying itch that Paul can't reach. It's something extremely significant and debilitating. Now, now some people think that the issue Paul had was some sin struggle um, um, that he had, like a temptation he was dealing with, but I, I don't think that's the answer, right? I don't think that's it. Number one, the word flesh seems to indicate it's something physical. And number two, I, I find it hard to picture Paul celebrating a sin struggle or temptation. I take pleasure in the fact that I struggle with lust. I, I take pleasure that I struggle with bitterness. It, that doesn't make sense to me, right? So Paul had some kind of physical infirmity. It, it may have been migraine headaches from a bout he had with malaria. You know, he traveled on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea where, where, where malaria was very common. Uh, some think it could have been eye troubles, right? I remember, remember Jesus blinded him. He had scales on his eyes, and, and he wrote to the church in Galatia, he said, hey, you'll notice how big the letters are, how big the font is, kind of like my font, you know, because I'm actually writing this and not dictating it. Um, he may have suffered, suffered from epilepsy. You know, in that time, pagans believed that if someone had epilepsy, that they had a demonic spirit and they would spit on them, right? And, and, and there's this strange verse in Galatians, in the original Greek, where Paul thanks the people in Galatia for not spitting on him. That's a weird thank you note, right? I've never written that thank you note. Hey, I just want to thank you guys for not spitting on me, right? Now, you could thank me if you sit close because I talk and spit, right? You know, you know? so that's kind of random. And, and, and so maybe, maybe that's what Paul struggled with. But we don't know really what the thorn was. What we do know is very significant. And we do know that after his first missionary journey, one of his constant traveling companions happened to be a doctor, right? Luke. Luke was with him. Again, a lot of different ideas. But we simply don't know because Paul doesn't tell us. And why does he tell us? I, I think for the same reason he didn't tell us about his trip to heaven, right? Because Paul doesn't want it to be about him. He doesn't want it to be about his struggle and his sickness. He, he, so he just says, I got this thorn. And I think another reason he doesn't um, tell us exactly what it is is because he knows that metaphor is helpful. You know, uh, so that every one of us can put something in that space, right? Grace is greater than whatever physical infirmity or sickness that we're struggling with or that one day will come against us. You know, grace is more than enough. Grace is sufficient. God's power can be made perfect in it. Yeah, the sickness, this difficulty is a big deal, is a big problem, and, and no, we are not sufficient. No, we are not enough. No, we are not greater than that, but grace is greater than. I came across a story this week that really captured these ideas. It was from a book written by Corey Tenboom called Tramp for the Lord. And she tells about this woman she met in Russia during the Cold War when Christians were heavily persecuted. Here's what she wrote. The old woman was lying on a 
small sofa propped up by pillows. Her body was bent and twisted almost beyond recognition by the dreaded disease of multiple sclerosis. Her aged husband spent all his time caring for her since she was unable to move off the sofa. In fact, there's only one part of her body that she could control. It was the index finger of her right hand. And so with that one finger, she would type all day, every day, often late into the night. But this woman wasn't just typing, she was translating. And that one finger... And with that one finger, she would translate the Bible and Christian books into Russian. Her husband hovered close by, explaining to me that sometimes it takes a long time for a finger to hit the key. And Corey Tenboom says that as she looked at this woman's wasted form on the sofa with her head pulled down and her feet curled under her body, she just cried out inwardly, Lord, why don't you do something? Why don't you heal her? She says her husband sensed my anguish anguishness and gave the answer. He said, God has a purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is being watched by the secret police. But because she has been sick so, for so long, no one ever looks in on her. They leave her alone. And she's the only person in the entire city who can translate undetected by the secret police. Now, now if we saw that woman, we would not be impressed with their strength. We might feel sorry for her. We might feel pity for her. But isn't it interesting that the one thing that seems to be destroying her, isn't it interesting that the one thing that she would most likely want to change, that one thorn she would most likely want to remove is the one thing that God used most powerfully in her life? His grace came into that space. His grace was sufficient. His power was made perfect. His power was brought to its purpose and fulfillment in her life through her sickness. Grace is greater than our infirmities. Amen? Amen. It's true. It's true. I, 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 I've seen it happen, and so have you. So have many of you. I, I mean, I, I, I saw up close the sufficiency of grace. Go ahead and pop that picture up there. I, I, I saw up close the sufficiency of grace and his power being made perfect in weakness as my, as my first wife, Judy, struggled with cancer for two years. Um, it's a terrible picture. We, I'm terrible at pictures. Now they have Facebook. You can find them. It didn't exist back then. But that's Judy. That's my son, John, sporting his glasses right there. He was here last week. And, and that's my daughter, Chelsea, to the right. And that, that, that was taken like three weeks before she went home um, to be with the Lord. And I got to tell you, um, grace was greater than her cancer. I got to tell you that, that, that grace came in and her weakness and that God's power rest. I mean, you, you can see it, right? Does she look defeated? Yeah, she may be down 80 pounds, but does she, she's not defeated. She's not defeated. And God's power was made perfect in her weakness, and God's power rested on her. Grace is greater than our infirmities. Amen? I, I love what Paul Butler says in his commentary I was reading this week. This is so good. Faith with God's grace produces divine power and victory in what the world calls weakness and defeat. Faith with God's grace produces divine power and victory yeah, in what the world would call weakness and defeat. That, that woman in, in Russia, she was not weak. She was victorious. You know, Judy was not weak. She was victorious. Next, grace is greater than our inabilities. Now, when we, we hear the word weakness, we associate it with our talents or abilities. And, like, you know, we don't have what it takes to get the job done. And have you ever been in a job interview where they ask this question? Right, the question we all hate, like, hey, what are, which one, what are some of your, your greatest weaknesses, right? You know, we hate that question, but since we got asked it, we got beat into the gang, we're going to ask the same question to people, right? And, and, and we don't really want to tell the truth because we want to get the job. And so we, we try to say something like this. Well, you know, my biggest weakness is, you know, I'm a driven person, you know. And, and, and you know, when there's something that needs to get done, Man, man, I get so zeroed and focused, I just do that. And I just forget about time, and I get so consumed with getting the job done. Now, if you hire me, you know, I, I'll do the best to keep that at bay, but that's really what I, my weakness, right? That's not a weakness. And that's what we do, right? We disguise our weaknesses, and we announce our strengths, and we put our confidence in ourselves, and we don't let people see what we're struggling with. A few years back, a really good business book came out called Strength Finder. Good book. 
right? You could take a test and figure out what your strengths were and nothing wrong with that. But I think Paul would recommend a different book. It would be called Weakness Finder, where you identify your weaknesses. You look at areas of your life where you're weak, where you don't have what it takes, where you lack the ability, and you say, that's a weakness, which means God has the opportunity there to show up and demonstrate his power. So instead of celebrating my strengths, I'm going to celebrate my weaknesses because that's where God's grace is going to meet me in the most dramatic of ways. And so I'm, I'm, not, going to run away. I'm, so I'm not going to run away from my weaknesses. I, I'm not going to hide from them. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to disguise them. I'm going to embrace them because that's where I'm going to know God's grace and experience his power. And that's hard to do. It, it goes against who we are and how we think. Uh, Acts 4.13 is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Uh, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. You know, what, what astonished the religious leaders was, man, these guys are ordinary. And look what they're doing. And they took note, not, they took note that they must have graduated from the University of Jerusalem, you know, with honors. No, you know, they took note, hey, these guys must have been with Jesus, and in the ordinariness and their weakness, God's power fell on them, and everybody knew who it was. Understand, they didn't have the right credentials. They didn't have the right resumes. They didn't have the right abilities. But look what they were doing. You know? And all that made them more powerful, which, by the way, is the theme that God uses throughout Scripture, right? Using weak things, right? I mean, you have Joseph, who is a, you know, a slave and a prisoner, saving God's people and becoming second command in Egypt. You have Moses, an 80-year-old fugitive, walking into the highest court of the land with, armed with nothing more than a stick. You have a frightening, terrified guy named Gideon, right, who, who takes on an army of tens of thousands with three or men, you know, armed with candles and clay pots. Michaels was going out of business, and he got a really good deal on the clay pots and candles, right? You have David, a shepherd boy, who faces a giant with nothing more than a stone. You have an orphan girl named Esther who becomes queen and saves his people, right? Orphans are not often seen as people of strength, right? You have a poor teenage girl named Mary and a blue-collar worker named Joseph, and they become the parents of the Son of God. And you have these ordinary, unskilled fishermen and tax collectors, and they're turning the world upside down. Brothers and sisters, grace is greater than your inabilities. And really with God, it's really not about your ability, it's about your availability, right? You make yourself available to God to do something, and God will take care of the rest. And grace is greater than your infirmities. Next, and finally, grace is greater than our insecurities. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be seen as weak. Yeah, you know, I, don't, I don't like being vulnerable. I don't like to say things like, I need help. I'm having a tough time here. I'm stuck, and I can use a hand. I'm in over my head. I don't have what it takes. I'm not sure what to do. But here's the problem. God's grace meets us at the point of our vulnerability. And the bottom line, if we want to know and experience God's power and have it perfected in us, we have to be weak. We have to be vulnerable. And so here's what I'm learning, that grace is greater than my insecurities. Understand, what God is teaching us through Paul is that we need to be glad and take pleasure and delight in those things, you know, those moments where we don't know what to do, those moments where we don't have what it takes, those moments where we feel overwhelmed, those moments where the task seems too big for an ordinary person like us, those moments where we feel vulnerable and insecure, those moments where we think we can't do it or afraid to try because we may fail and look stupid. Because it is in those moments where God's grace and his power are most clearly demonstrated. Therefore, doesn't it make sense that we would step into them instead of step away from them because of our insecurities? You know, after high school, you know, I joined the Navy. And after two years of school, I served on submarines for, from age 20 to 27. And, you know, I loved it. I got my dolphins, my first patrol soon qualified engineer watch supervisor. A little later, I was given the opportunity to, you know, to qualify for chief of the watch, right? The lead enlisted guy in the sub control room. Pretty high honor. Not many guys do it. Pretty cool for a, a 23-year-old. But I didn't go for it. And, and now I said at the time it was because I didn't want to work with a bunch of four pukes and coners, right? You know, hey, I'm a nuke. I'm in the back part of the sub. I'm better than them, right? That's what I said. But you know why I never 
tried, and I never told anyone about this until this weekend. You know why I never tried? Because I, I didn't know if I could do it. I, 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 was afraid that, that, I was afraid that I would try and I wouldn't make it. And so it's easier for me not to try than to try something and fail. You know, and, and I love to tell you that later that week in Cruise Mess, they were showing Rocky III, you know, and I started listening to Eye of the Tiger, you know, man. And I got that Eye of the Tiger, and I went back and did it, but I never did. And maybe that's okay in a sub-control room, but that's not okay in life. That's not okay in our home. That's not okay in our marriage. That's not okay as a Jesus follower. That's not okay in our ministry. It's not okay to say, well, I don't know what's going to happen, so I'm not even going to try. I hear you ask me to do this, God, but I'm not even going to try. And, you know, I, I can't help but wonder how many times I've done that. How many times I missed out on God's grace and power in my life, not because I was strong, but because I was too proud to be weak. But like you guys, I'm a learning curve man, right? And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm seeing what you're saying, God, you know? So one of the things you could do as a preacher, you could talk about places you need to go that you're not there yet <laughs> and that you're striving for. Now, understand, Paul, Paul, the entire letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth was written out of a place of weakness where he gained an understanding about the power of weakness. Uh, we don't want you in the dark, dear friends, about how hard it was when all of this came down on us in Asia. It was so bad we didn't think we were going to make it, ever been there. We felt like we'd been sent to death row. Uh, that was all over for us. As it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened. Why? Instead of trusting our own strength or wits to get out of it, we were forced to trust totally on God. Not a bad idea, since he's the God who raises the dead. And he did it. Rescued us from certain doom, and he'll do it again, rescuing us many times as we need rescuing. Amen? Amen. Now, I, I don't know. Maybe today you're at a place where the weight is too much, where the where the pressure is too intense, where the struggle is too overwhelming that you can't do it. And you're finding that your default approach of, I got this, it's not going to work this time. And it, I pray that this happens to every single person in this room so that we'll be forced to trust totally on God, which is not a bad idea since he's a God who raises the dead. I want to wrap up here with a word picture a guy painted about this very topic. And so I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes. Now, this won't be weird. Or maybe it will be weird, right? Uh, but close your eyes and just kind of picture this metaphor that I'm going to describe. So I want you, with your eyes closed, to picture that you have a cup in your hand. Maybe it's a glass, a mug, but it's a cup. And you look down and it's empty. And I want that cup to represent kind of your point of vulnerability to represent the weaknesses in your life and inability and insecurity and infirmity. Now picture yourself walking over to a hose that's coming out of a huge wall. You, you can't see around the wall and you don't know what the hose is connected to, but you turn it on and water starts coming out. The water represents God's grace and it comes out of this hose and it starts to fill your cup. Not very fast, but there's a steady stream. You're not even sure it's going to fill it to the top, but it does. And just as it makes it to the top, the water turns off. Now picture yourself a little later coming back, and this time you're carrying an empty bucket. Maybe you had a little bit of, of a health scare, or maybe you're struggling to make the grades. Maybe you can barely cover the bills, and you just need some grace. But your bucket is a lot bigger than your cup. It's a pretty big bucket. And you turn on the hose that's coming out of the wall, and you're not sure if there'll be enough for your bucket, but you turn it on, and slowly the water fills up the bucket, and sure enough, right as it gets to the top, the water stops. Picture yourself now, sometime later, you come back with a wheelbarrow. You need a lot of grace this time because you lost your job and with it, your confidence. Your, your marriage is in pretty rough shape and you feel overwhelmed. Your children are going through some serious stuff and have left you exhausted. You're facing some extremely difficult time and you don't see how much longer you'll be able to tread water and you need some grace. And so you grab the hose, it's coming out of this huge wall, and sure enough, a stream of water slowly starts to fill the wheelbarrow, but you're pretty sure that it won't be enough this time. I mean, it's a big wheelbarrow, but there is. There's just enough, and it reaches the top, and the water turns off. One more. You come back again, and this time you're driving a semi-truck. 
And it's connected to a massive trailer-sized water tank, and it's completely empty. And you know there won't be enough water to fill this tank. You know that, but you'll take what you can get. You find out that there, you found out that the cancer is terminal. Uh, you found out that the company you sacrifice everything for isn't going to make it. You found out about the abuse, or you found out about the affair, and you know, you know there won't be enough water. But whatever you can get, you'll take. And so you turn that hose on, and the water starts slowly coming out. And it takes a while. It takes quite a while, but eventually you're amazed as it fills the entire water tank. At this point, your curiosity gets the best of you, and you look to either side of the wall, and you're wondering, what in the world is that hose connected to? And you realize that you can't walk around the wall. And yes, by the way, the wall is a metaphor as well, and so it has to be torn down. You have to tear down the wall, but tearing down walls is hard, and it can be painful work. Oftentimes, these walls are built up over years, but you do. You tear it down. When you tear it down, you follow the hose to its source, and there it is, Miles and miles and miles, as far as you can see, is the ocean of God's grace. And it's unending. And listen, whatever size container you come to God with, that's what he fills. You bring a cup, he fills a cup. You bring a bucket, he fills a bucket. You bring a wheelbarrow, he fills that wheelbarrow. And so brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you and to me is to back up our truck to identify and understand and delight in our weakness because when we are weak, he is strong. And listen, as much space as we can identify, as much weakness as we can identify, that's what he'll fill with his grace and his power. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this paradox. It doesn't make sense to us, you know, in our economy of things that when we're weak, we're strong. But God, those of us who've experienced your grace in those moments get it, and we understand it, and we celebrate it. It doesn't mean we don't want the thorn to go away. It doesn't mean we, don't, we wish we didn't have to go through those hard and difficult times, but it does mean, God, that you can and you do redeem them, and that you can and do meet us there with your grace when we are at the most emptiest point, the most vulnerable point. And it's those times, God, that we know that your power is most clearly demonstrated in our lives. And so, God, would you let us not be afraid to step into it, to move towards our, our weakness, to step into our vulnerability so that we can experience the greatness of your grace? Because your grace is greater than. Your grace is greater than our hurts. Your grace is greater than our mistakes. Your, your grace is greater than our weaknesses, than our inabilities, than our insecurities, and than our infirmities. And Father, we thank you that your grace is greater and that your grace is not um, stagnant or static, but that your grace seeks us and finds us. In Jesus' name, amen.